The following audio is from Overland Park Community Church. More information about OPCC is available online at www.overlandpark.cc. Here we are, man. We're in Acts chapter 7. Um, and like, so I thought this was going to be an easy sermon to preach because Stephen preaches a sermon and I'm going to be preaching about a sermon that he preached. Um, but man, I, like, it's, it's really packed full of goodies. Uh, and, and so we've got a lot of ground to cover today. This is a fairly long chapter and we're going to cover all of it today. Um, it, it really doesn't make any sense to, to cut the sermon in half and preach uh, two different Sundays on this one. So man, we, we are going to plow through. Um, and I'm, gonna, I'm trusting in the Lord um, that he is going to share uh, everything by the power of his Holy Spirit to you guys that he wants to say through me and through this chapter. Um, no more, no less. So um, it, it, we find ourselves here, uh, a brief recap from last week. So Stephen, uh, in Acts chapter 6, uh, was chosen as one of the deacons, right? The church chose uh, seven men, faithful men within the church, um, to be responsible for the overseeing of the distribution of the food in the church, right? Uh, we read about that last week. And so Stephen uh, has now, in a very short period of time, um, gone from being called as a, as a deacon uh, to, to oversee uh, a need, uh, a physical, a practical need within the church, to now he has been presented uh, before the Sanhedrin, or the, the Jewish Supreme Court of the day, the, the highest elite of religious leaders in Jerusalem. And how did he get there? Well, I'm going to back up briefly in Acts chapter 6 and say that they seized Stephen. I'm in verse 12 of chapter 6. Um, it says, they seized Stephen and they brought him before the Sanhedrin. They produced false witnesses. That's how he ended up there. There were people that were uh, ratting him out. They were accusing him of this. It, it says, uh, this fellow never stops speaking against this holy place, speaking of the temple and the law. For we've also heard him say that Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and change the customs that Moses handed down to us. All who were sitting in the Sanhedrin looked intently at Stephen and they saw his face like an angel, right? That's where we ended up last week. And so that's how he ended up uh, it, before the Sanhedrin, before these uh, religious elite. So he was serving tables. He was administering the, the, the practical need in the church. And now he uh, was proclaiming the good news of Jesus while he was doing that. He was preaching about Jesus Christ. And the teachers of the law seized him and they've brought him before. And they're making false accusations against him. So we start here in verse 1, Acts chapter 7. Here we go. It says, Then the high priest, who at this time was likely still Caiaphas, the same high priest during the time that Jesus was still alive on earth, and the high priest asked Stephen, are these charges true? Now, what charges is he talking about? Primarily, the three charges that were against him were, again, a blasphemy against the law itself, the Mosaic law, speaking against the temple, and it's the destruction of it, which they held very closely to their hearts, and then blasphemy against Mo Moses and the Jewish customs. So, Stephen said, uh, I'm sorry, Caiaphas, the high priest, asked Stephen, are these things true? 
And so a window of opportunity has been opened for our brother Stephen, and he takes full advantage of it. He, to this, he replied, Brothers and fathers, listen to me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham while he was still in Mesopotamia, before he lived in Haran. Leave your country and your people, God said, and go to the land that I will show you. So Stephen starts rolling out a history lesson for the Sanhedrin. And it's interesting that he's giving the Sanhedrin a history lesson when in reality it probably should have or could have been the opposite. The Sanhedrin were the highest order of the teachers of the law of the day. So it's funny that Stephen's actually recapping for them what they actually do and are accountable to already know. So it's important to know that. Verse 4. So he, talking about Abraham, left the land of the Chaldeans and settled in Haran. After the death of his father, God sent him to this land where you are now living, Israel. Quick note, it's important to know, Abraham, although a patriarch of the faith, uh, absolutely, like though he's the father of our faith, right? It was uh, the blessings of the Lord were bestowed upon Abraham because of his faith in the Lord, not in his performance. But it's also important to know that Abraham delayed the blessings of the Lord in his life by not completely following the commandment of the Lord on his life to go and inhabit the land of Canaan. Abraham, for a period of 20 years, waited until his father passed away before he actually fulfilled the calling of God on his life. And in Genesis, those 20 years, there's absolutely nothing recorded about Abraham's life during that period of time. So that's interesting. That's a quick nugget for us that perhaps um, God may be asking of you something. Uh, God may be calling you out of the land of the Chaldeans and into the land of promise. And like, I, I ask you, like, have, have you made a pause, like, in your life? Like, are you, is there, um, have you stopped? Have you, have you set up camp halfway between where the Lord has called you from and where the Lord wants you to go? That's a good question to ask ourselves. Uh, the, Abraham is a, a good example for us um, of what it's like to grow in our faith. Like, Abraham didn't immediately become, like, this amazing man of God. In the eyes of the Lord, he did, but in terms of how he walked out his obedience, he grew in his faith, much like we do. We're every person in this room. We are growing in our faith. So, um, verse 5, he gave him no inheritance here, not even enough ground to set his foot on. But God promised him that he and his descendants after him would possess the land, even though at that time Abraham had no child. It's interesting that God gave promises to Abraham that had not yet been fulfilled. Uh, the interesting thing, too, is we'll see later that, um, in fact, the very cave uh, that Jacob was, ends up being buried in was a, on a piece of land that Abraham had bought for a small sum of money, in all of the land of Israel, that was the only tiny little sliver of land that Abraham actually owned. Everything else was given to Abraham through faith. And every time Abraham stepped out in faith, the Lord revealed more blessing to him. May that be a good word for us today. God spoke to him in this way, verse 6. 
For 400 years, your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own. And they will be enslaved and mistreated. He's prophesying about the nation of Israel going into captivity. But I will punish the nation they serve as slaves, God said. And afterward, they will come out of that country and worship me in this place. Then he gave Abraham the covenant of circumcision, which was the, the, the marking of the, the people of Israel. And Abraham, um, the father of Isaac, and circ- uh, became the father of Isaac and circumcised him eight days after his birth. Later, Isaac became the father of Jacob, and Jacob became the father of the twelve patriarchs. So he's just summarizing. The Jews, a lot of times, will say um, they want to clarify exactly who their ancestors were. Like, it was important to them to know where they came from. You know, a lot of times you'll hear um, the, the Jews or will say that, man, we worship um, not just God, not just Yahweh, but we worship the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Like, they will say that often. They repeat that often. They want to know that, 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 like they want people to know and they want the other nations of the world to know that they weren't talking about some mythical God or some random God or um, some made up God, but it was indeed the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Real people at a real time with a real calling uh, and real design by a real God. It's very important. So Stephen here is starting to heat up. Like he's starting to warm up. And one thing, though, that is important to note, and you'll see this as he breaks down the history of the nation of Israel, is uh, going back into, I believe it was verse 6, where it says, God spoke to him in this way. And like Abraham, God spoke to Abraham where? In the desert, in the middle of nowhere. That's where God spoke to Abraham. We'll see here in a second, where did God speak to Joseph? on his way to Egypt as he was sold as a slave? Where did God speak to Moses? In a burning bush, in the desert, right? It, what Stephen is, you know, because one of the claims against Stephen, um, uh, they, were, they were saying, Stephen, you're speaking blasphemy against the temple, the house of God. They, the religious leaders of the day, had been under the false idea that God was only alive in the temple, he was only, the, the, like the God of the universe, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of the Christian faith, the God whom Jesus Christ is the son of, they believed that he only lived and dwelt in the temple. And at the time, that was indeed true in terms of the fact that the Spirit of the Lord dwelt between the cherubs in the Ark of the Covenant, you know, um, on the mercy seat in the Holy of Holies, in the temple. Indeed, that was true, but... He's reminding them that even throughout history, God didn't speak to Moses in the, in the tabernacle. God didn't speak to Abraham in the temple. God can speak to us exactly where we are. And Stephen's making the point that even more so, the temple will become void. Like he's clarifying that for them. And it's frustrating them. Like they're getting warmed up. They're like, you're telling me that God's not in this church? You know, is basically what they're saying. And he's like, yeah. I am. I'm telling you that the Holy Spirit of God lives in the physical believer and that he's, he's rattling their brain. Verse 9, because the patriarchs were jealous of Joseph, they sold him as a slave into Egypt. You guys know the story. But God was with him. Again, God was with Joseph and rescued him from all his troubles. He gave Joseph wisdom, and he enabled him to gain the goodwill of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. 
So Pharaoh made him a ruler over Egypt and all of his palace. You guys know the story, right? Joseph is sold into slavery by his brothers into Egypt. He uh, comes into great power um, and really becomes second in line to Pharaoh himself in Egypt. He becomes royalty in the enemy nation. Then a famine struck Egypt, I'm in verse 11, and Canaan bringing great suffering. And our ancestors could not find food. When Jacob heard that there was grain in Egypt, he sent our forefathers on their first visit. On their second visit, Joseph told his brothers who he was, and Pharaoh learned about Joseph's family. After this, Joseph sent for his father Jacob and his whole family, 75 of them in all. And Jacob went down to Egypt, where he and our ancestors died. Their bodies were bought, uh, brought back to Shechem and placed in the very tomb that Abraham had bought for the sons of Hamor at Shechem for a certain sum of money. That's the track of land I was telling you that Abraham bought. Everything else that Abraham uh, was given or inherited was through faith. That's kind of interesting. Um, so uh, some things to, to, to key in on here in terms of uh, God showing his faithfulness uh, through Joseph. Uh, Stephen emphasized the spiritual presence of God with Joseph all the time. Not it doesn't say Joseph quickly ran to the temple for help from God. It, it says that God was with him. God was with him all the time. Stephen's teaching an important doctrine to the Sanhedrin and to us today that God is with us all the time. And we have got to believe that if we want to walk out the fullness of what God wants to do in our life. Uh, Stephen also mentions the story of Joseph uh, because he is a picture of Jesus in that the sons of Israel rejected Joseph, who later became a savior to them. And the nation of Israel did the exact same thing to Jesus. They rejected Jesus, even though he came to save them, right? So he moves on here. Verse 17, we've got Abraham, Joseph. Now he's moving on to Moses, and he says this. As the time drew near for God to fulfill his promise to Abraham... Fulfill the prophecy. The number of our people in Egypt had greatly increased. Then a new king, a different Pharaoh than when Joseph was in a high position. A new Pharaoh has come into power. He dealt treacherously with our people and he oppressed our ancestors by forcing them to throw out their newborn babies so that they would die. Does that remind anybody of anything? King Herod ordering all the firstborn babies of the, of the people of Israel to be killed. It's pretty, the, the devil kind of seems to have a way of, of, of rolling out the same plans of execution, right? We ought to be able to sniff out the works of the enemy in our life as we start to see a pattern. Oh yeah, I remember when the devil threw me that snare. And now we start to see and we grow in our faith. We mature as Abraham did as we seek towards righteousness, but God can give us the wisdom through the Holy Spirit to know the traps the enemy is setting. History always repeats itself, and Satan's no different. Verse 20, at that time Moses was born, and he was no ordinary child. So I want you guys to start to see the parallels of Moses and Jesus. What Stephen is doing very eloquently is he's not only reminding them of the history of their nation, but he is highlighting the person and the savior of Jesus Christ through what God has done through Moses, okay? So 
a decree to kill all the firstborns. That's, a, that's, that's one to keep in mind. It says that when Moses was born, he was no ordinary child. He was a special child. The Bible calls it out. It says Moses was different, just like Jesus was no ordinary child, indeed. For three months, he was cared for by his family. And then when he was placed outside, Pharaoh's daughter took him and brought him up as her own son. So, you know, Moses was placed in a basket and he floated down the river to Pharaoh's house, right? Pharaoh's daughter comes out there and sees this little baby in this basket. You guys know the story. It's fascinating, though, that God's uh, preservation over Moses' life. Like, and it's, uh, it's very similar to uh, how Jesus was born in Bethlehem, but, they, but Mary and Joseph had to flee for a brief time because of the persecution, because of the decree to kill all the babies. 22, Moses was educated in all the wisdom of the Egyptians and was powerful in speech and action. Moses was blessed, man. God made him unique. God called Moses to a special purpose. In God's sovereignty, he made Moses unique. Moses was still a sinner, still in need of the grace of God, still in need of a Savior in Jesus Christ. But without a doubt, God had a special calling, a unique calling on the life of Moses. Now it says, when Moses was 40 years old, he decided to visit his own people, the Israelites. He saw one of them being mistreated. So Moses lived a glorious life, right? And very similar to Joseph, he was raised up in the palace. Like Moses, for 40 years, lived with Pharaoh. He lived in the palace. Like he lived in royalty for 40 years. God started moving on his heart to visit his own people, the Israelites. So in verse 24, Moses, he saw one of them being mistreated by an Egyptian, and he went to his defense and avenged him by killing the Egyptian. Listen to this, verse 25. Moses thought that his own people would realize that God was using him to rescue them, but they did not. Jesus thought the exact same thing. Jesus rode into Jerusalem on the backside of the donkey, exactly as it was prophesied, and he rode into Jerusalem, and they were waving the palm branches, Hosanna, Hosanna, but they missed him. So much so that Jesus said that even these rocks were crying out. Right? Like, Jesus really, I mean, of course, Jesus knew, he's fully God and fully man, he knew that they were going to miss him, but nonetheless, I'm sure as that, that's the fully God part of Jesus, knowing that they were, were not going uh, uh, to receive him. But the fully man part of Jesus was probably like, are you kidding me? Like, the, you guys claim you're teachers of the law, you wear the robes, you're in the temples, you do all these things, but yet you don't know that I'm exactly who the Bible uh, has proclaimed that I would be. Like, in fact, there's a prophecy that to the very day that I would ride a horse in in this direction, on this day and time in human history to present myself as the king of Israel, and you guys have no idea what's going on? I'm sure that shocked the Lord, and it frustrated Moses at that time when he went to avenge the blood of his enemies to his people, which is what Jesus is doing for us. Jesus came to avenge the blood of our enemies, and we find Moses here just as frustrated. The next day, Moses came up to two Israelites who were fighting. He tried to reconcile them by saying, men, you're brothers. You guys are bros. Why do you want to hurt each other? But the man who was mistreating the other pushed Moses aside. Like I could see him like physically aggressively push him aside. 
And he says, who made you ruler and a, king, and a judge over us? Are you thinking of killing me as you killed the Egyptian yesterday? And when Moses heard this, he fled to Midian. And he settled there as a foreigner. And he had two sons. Moses was there for 40 years. Does that ring a bell to anybody? Who made you a ruler and a judge over us? They said the exact same thing to Jesus. Who made you a ruler over us? Right? Pilate wrote on the cross, Jesus, King of the Jews. The same accusations being made to Moses are the exact same accusations that are being made towards Jesus, whom the Sanhedrin, who Stephen is preaching to, would all this would be very fresh in their minds. Like the events of Christ and the resurrection, uh, the death and the, and the crucifixion and the resurrection and all these events of the early church are very fresh on their mind. So this is hitting home for them. After 40 years had passed, an angel appeared to Moses in the flames of a burning bush in the desert near Mount Sinai. So Moses, 40 years in royalty, lived near basically as a king, right? He then goes to visit his people. He has a heart for what God's doing in his life to go and save the Israelites from the slavery of Egypt, but they reject him, right? So he flees for 40 years. 40 years in royalty, 40 years he lives in the desert, barren. I can't imagine what 40 years in the desert is like. And what's cool is here, I felt like the Lord put on my heart, man, like tell the people that if you feel like you're in a desert season, like, man, God can set a fire in you in an instant. Like, God can show up in your life in the same way that he did with Moses. Like, a burning fire can come into your life, the fire of Christ, to set a new vision and a new hope for you. Like, maybe somebody needs to hear that today. If, you're, if your life's been dry, you feel like you've spent 40 years in the desert, tune in to what God does in Moses. It says... In verse 31, when he saw this, the burning bush, he was amazed at the sight. As he went over to get a closer look, he heard the Lord say. So the burning bush indeed is a Christophany or a, an appearance of the literal Jesus Christ to Moses. Jesus himself shows up before Moses. And he says this in verse 32, and you'll hear what I said earlier. I am the God of your fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Jesus himself is clarifying, I am the Lord, the one and only God. Moses trembled with fear and did not dare to look. Then the Lord said to Moses, take off your sandals for the place where you're standing is holy ground. I've indeed seen the oppression of my people in Egypt. I've heard their groaning and have come down to set them free. Now come, I will send you back to Egypt. Moses now, at 80 years old, has a fresh calling on his life. This is the same Moses that they had rejected with the words, who made you a ruler and a judge? He was sent to be their ruler and deliverer by God himself through the angel who appeared to him in the bush. He led them out of Egypt and performed wonders and signs in Egypt at the Red Sea and for 40 years in the wilderness. This is the Moses who told the Israelites, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your own people. That is a prophecy of Jesus himself. Moses was saying he was doing exactly like John the Baptist did. 
I am not the Savior, but there will be one that comes after me who is. Moses said it. John the Baptist said it. Isaiah said it. It's a repeated verse, repeated um, statement in the Old Testament about the pointing to the Savior of Jesus Christ. So it's a prophecy of of the Lord specifically. He was in the assembly in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him on Mount Sinai and with our ancestors, and he received living words to pass on to us. They're talking about the fact that Moses began to lead them through the desert. God gave him revelation. Moses wrote the first five books of the Bible, right? And he, Moses was, went up to the mountain of God on Mount Sinai, right? And literally the hand of God came down and wrote on the stone, Right? Moses was there, is what Stephen is saying. Moses was approved by God. He's, he's starting to, he's really hammering home this picture. Just as much as Moses was approved by God, Jesus, the Son of God, is approved by God. He's really driving this point home that you guys need to stop focusing on the religious parts of your life and you need to start thinking about Jesus. That's what Stephen is saying, man. He's getting down in there with these guys, and he's cutting them to the heart. We'll see earlier. I want to paint this picture that as I'm preaching even, that picture yourself is like as Stephen is bringing the word, man, they're getting mad. Like they're clenching their fists, man. It says that they were started to gnash their teeth. And we'll see later how they actually end up responding to Stephen, but the Holy Spirit gives him an additional time to share the truth. But um, but our verse 39, our ancestors refused to obey him. Instead, they rejected him, and in their hearts they turned back to Egypt. They told Aaron, while Moses was up on Mount Sinai receiving direct revelation from God, they told Aaron, make us gods who will go before us. As for this fellow Moses who led us out of Egypt, we don't know what's happened to him. We have no idea what happened to Moses, so we're going to turn away from serving the Lord. Make us an idol, Aaron, who was the brother of Moses. Make us an idol that we can worship, man, and that'll make us happy. And after we're done worshiping that idol, we want to go back to Egypt. We want to go back into slavery. There's times in our lives where we do the same thing, unfortunately. Like we make idols of things in our life. We, we kind of give up on worshiping Jesus. We start worshiping something else. Maybe it's our job. Maybe it's a relationship. Maybe it's a sport. Maybe it's an activity. Maybe it's a drug. Maybe it's something on the internet. We start worshiping other things other than Jesus and we put ourselves back in slavery. Stephen's reminding us that that's exactly what the, what the nation of Israel did. And we're, we're vulnerable to that too. It's a caution for us. Verse 41, that was the time they made an idol in the form of a calf. They made a golden calf. They brought sacrifices to it and revealed, I'm sorry, and reveled in what their own hands had made. Man, this cut the hearts of the Sanhedrin. This cut the hearts of the men of Israel. Their hands, they believed that their ancestors, King David and King Solomon and all those who followed after them, they were the ones that built this amazing temple. He was really pressing in on their identity. He's saying that just like the fools in the desert worshiped that silly golden calf that they made, you guys are worshiping this temple that human hands have made. 
But God turned away from them and gave them over to the worship of the sun, moon, and the stars. This agrees with that which was prophesied, was written in the book of the prophets. Did you bring me sacrifices and offerings, says the Lord? Forty years in the wilderness. People of Israel, you have taken up the tabernacle of Molech, a false god, and the star of your god, Raphon, a false god, the idols you made to worship, the calf. Therefore, I will send you into exile beyond Babylon. That is the prophecy exactly as given to Abraham. God told him that he's going to raise up a nation. He's going to raise up people that God wants to shine a light in, but they're going to reject the Lord, and God is going to send them into exile so to teach them a lesson. God sends us into exile from time to time to teach us a lesson as well. God wants to get, so, get our attention because he loves us. It's like when your, your kid runs out into the street, and you, what does the parent do? They don't just remain silent and be like, oh, he'll be fine. You know, what a horrible parent, right? When your kid starts running out in the street, you say, Gabriel, stop! Like you scream at them, and you go over there, and you probably grab their hand, grab their arm a little tight to wake them up. You want them to know that this is a serious thing. Like, it's really important. And you're not abusing your child. You're saying, bro, this is serious, man. Your life is on the line. And that's what God will do to us sometimes. You're running out into the street, and he's grabbing your arm, and he's like, it's important, man. Your life is on the line. Like, if you're not living for me, you're dead. Like, apart from me, you can do nothing. So the, lo the love of the Father is tremendous. May we re be reminded of that. Our ancestors had the tabernacle of the covenant law with them in the wilderness. It had been made as God directed Moses, the, the tabernacle that they carried around, that, that housed the presence of God. God gave Moses instructions on what to do and how to build it, very precise, and he followed accordingly. After receiving the tabernacle, our ancestors under Joshua brought it with them. And when they took the land from the nations that God drove out before them, it remained in the land until the time of David, who enjoyed God's favor and asked that he might provide a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. But it was Solomon, David's son, who ended up building a house for him. Solomon was the one that built the temple. But it was the presence of God that gave them the victory in the battle in the Old Testament. And it's no different in our life. It is the presence of God in our life that gives us the battle for the things that we're facing on this side of the cross. However, the Most High does not live in houses made by human hands, he says. Stephen's getting in there on him again. He's saying, man, the, 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 the Most High, and keep in mind, he's talking to the high priest, the Most High of the men of Israel. He's saying the Most High, speaking of God himself, does not live in houses made by human hands. He says, as the prophet says, and he quotes out of Isaiah 66, heaven is my throne, declares the Lord. The earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or where will my resting place be? Has not my hand made all these things? Like, I'm sure Stephen was saying, guys, like, are you so foolish to think that God that we believe created all of heaven and earth? That is the same God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? The same God that split the sea for Moses in the Red Sea? The same God that showed up in the burning bush? 
The same God that performed all of these miracles, he fed us for 40 years with manna from heaven. Like, he's delivered us from all of our enemies. He was with us in the Ark of the Covenant when Joshua went in and, and captured the land. Like, this same God, are you guys so futile in thinking that God just lives here? Like, he has a bedroom? Like, he's, he's getting serious with them. Verse 51, man, he says, you stiff-necked people. You stiff-necked people. He's not bashful about telling them that their ways of thinking are foolish. He's not. And in fact, the stiff-necked people is used 22 times in Scripture to define the people of Israel. Your hearts and ears are still uncircumcised. You're just like your ancestors. You always resist the Holy Spirit. Was there ever a prophet in your ancestors didn't, that your ancestors did not persecute? There wasn't. Jeremiah, Isaiah, you name it. They were all persecuted. Jeremiah, man, God, like, Jeremiah was pleading with the people. He's like, guys, just please turn your hearts back to the Lord. You're going to get sent to Babylon. This is going to stink. This is not going to be good, guys. And they were like, shh. You go live in the caves. We don't want to hear from you anymore. And what happened? They find themselves in captivity. He's reminding them that they're acting exactly like their ancestors. He says, and now you have betrayed and murdered him. Talking about the prophet that was prophesied to come, Jesus Christ. You who have received the law that was given through angels, but have not obeyed it. Listen to this. When the members of the Sanhedrin heard this, they were furious. They gnashed their teeth at him. But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven. He saw the glory of God, and he saw Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Look, he said, I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. And this they covered their ears. They couldn't take it anymore. They didn't want to hear the truth. They, they were so resistant to the love of God that Jesus Christ, the very Son of God, died for their sin and hung on the cross with them in mind and then rose from the dead and told them he would put his spirit in them so that they might live a fruitful life. They didn't want to hear it. And so they covered their ears and yelling at the top of their voices, they rushed at him dragged him out of the city, and began to stone him. Meanwhile, the witnesses laid their coats at the feet of a young man named Saul. While they were stoning him, Stephen prayed, this might sound familiar to you, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he fell on his knees, and he cried out, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. And Saul approved of the killing. So I want to summarize here what had happened. So Stephen is, what he's doing here, he's obviously making some very strong points to the Sanhedrin. I want to summarize the points that he made to the men of Israel, and I want to parallel those to what Stephen is saying to the church today. Number one, he was holding them accountable that the entire history of Israel pointed to the coming of Christ. 
He was holding them accountable to that. And he was unashamedly, very boldly, preaching the truth about their history and how it pointed exactly to Jesus Christ, the very one that they hung on the cross. And he was holding them responsible for it. And I know that he was holding himself responsible too. I stand here today reminding you that I'm just as responsible for putting Jesus on the cross as anybody else who's ever had air in their lungs. Right? But... So he, he was holding them accountable that the entire history of Israel pointed to the coming of Christ. We, the church, are more accountable to knowing that all the history, remember, history is his story. It's the story of Jesus. All of it points to the coming and the person of Jesus Christ. We have the privilege as the church to look back to the first coming of Christ and glorify the name of Jesus for dying on the cross and raising from the dead and being our savior and giving us hope of eternal life and a blessed life on this side of eternity. And we get to look forward to the second coming of Christ. What a blessing. And a privilege. May we not take that for granted. We are responsible for a right relationship with God. And the health of that relationship is dependent upon our pursuit of him. That's important. Number two, God no longer simply dwelt in the temple, is what Stephen was proclaiming to them. They were saying that he was speaking blasphemy against the temple. He wasn't. He was preaching a core truth, which is a very important truth for us today, that God doesn't just live in OPCC. Like, he doesn't have an office, you know, and a special bathroom. He lives in the hearts of us. Like, we are the church. Like, that is so important. And so if you're a Christian, man, God lives in you. So live like it. Live like it. Like God is with you every minute of every day, just like he was with Joseph, just like he was with Abraham, just like he was with Moses. He is with you. We got to live like it. And last thing, man, he called them out strong. He said, you stiff-necked people, your hearts and ears are still uncircumcised. Have you not learned from your ancestors? Stephen was basically telling them, you, you keep killing and persecuting the very people that are communicating the amazing God, the amazing love that God has for you. Like the truth that is in Christ, man, the, 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 the idea that, that God so loved the world that he gave his only son to die for you so that he could have fellowship with you forever. Like that is the gospel and the, the amazing love of God. And so he would encourage us today, like to share with the church today, we need to learn from our ancestors exactly what Stephen has said to the Sanhedrin. He would say to us, do not delay in responding to the call of God on your life. Like, like don't bother with living in rebellion any longer. Don't bother turning back to idols. Do not reject the truth about Jesus. Like people have been doing that for years and it's an age old goof. So people have been rejecting the person of Jesus. They reject the gospel. They abandon the church. They separate themselves from fellowship. You know, they gave their life to Christ one time at youth camp 25 years ago, and they've made it to church 10 times since then. Eight out of 10 was Christmas. You know, it's just, you're living in rebellion. You're living in rejection, whether you're saved or not. It, it, we're not talking about salvation. We're talking about the sanctification, the, a life uh, abundant that Jesus promised we would live. Like that's, that's where the sweet spot is. I want to wrap with this. 
And I'm surprised I didn't do too bad on time. I just felt like I was, I was praying and I was asking the Lord, like, man, this is interesting. Like, Stephen, he's, he's letting them have it here. But there's so much hope for us in this message as well. And I just wanted to summarize, like, what I felt like Stephen might say to us if, if he was with us right now. Like, think about Brother Stephen, man. He was the first martyr. He was the first recorded person to die for his faith, and he was happy to do it. It, 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 I'm reminded, like, when I was doing some reading, because I was curious about the execution uh, via stoning. Like, that's a, that's a pretty uh, unimaginable form of, of death. And what they would do is, at first, they would shove the person really excessively hard. And a lot of times, they would shove this person so hard in, either into a wall or into a big rock, like a big boulder. And a lot of times, the thud would kill the person instantly. But in this case, it's so interesting to know that it says first that they shoved him, and then he said, Father, receive my spirit, right? And then the, the second way that they would pursue the execution would be if pushing them into the big boulder didn't kill them, they would take the largest rock with the strongest man, and they would allow the man to smote the person on the back of the head and hoping that that would kill them. If that didn't kill them, which it didn't kill Stephen because it said he fell to his knees and he said, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Like he had a heart for the lost. And so after getting smashed into likely a giant boulder head first and then getting pounded in the back of the head with a huge rock by the strongest man in the crowd, they allow the rest of the angry mob who were rejecting Jesus to all throw stones at him and that is what killed him. And I, I, I can't help but think like how happy Stephen is right now. He is with the Lord. In that moment, he saw the Son of God seated at the right hand of God, and he, he was so overwhelmed. Like, he probably didn't even feel the rocks hitting him in the head. And so I, I, this is what I felt like Stephen would say to us if he was here right now. Church, I have seen the Lord in his goodness, and it is greater than you could ever imagine. I have felt the deepest pain of being stoned to death for the truth but it was worth it. I can now see through the lens of God on this side of heaven, and I see what a great testimony it was, and how God used me to reach the one person called to reach the entire world, my brother Paul. Have grace and mercy on those who persecute you. Live passionately for God and yield all of your life to him. If you only knew he will present you crowns on the day of judgment at the beam of seat of Christ that you will throw right back at the feet of Jesus and the welcome that you'll receive in the kingdom for placing your faith in his son will be everything your soul desired and more. Be filled with the Holy Spirit and let's rejoice in the work of God together when he calls you home to us. Live well, brothers and sisters. Truly, I tell you, live well. And to live well is to live for Christ. Are you living yet? Thank you for listening to audio from Overland Park Community Church in Overland Park, Kansas. For more information, visit us online at www.overlandpark.com.
www.cc.org.